This podcast has not been sanctioned. The battleground is Monday nights. 80. For a campaign of 83 consecutive weeks. Three. There was a clear winner in this historic war. Weeks. This is the story of that campaign. 83 weeks. 20 years later, the time has come the whole truth. For the whole truth. This is 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. What's going on, man? How are you? It's another day in paradise. I'm doing, I'm fabulous. I'm just fabulous. The man we're going to be talking about today, Brian Pillman. And there is so much meat on the bone in this episode. We're going to do our best to get it all in here, but I got to be honest, no promises. This is one of those episodes that could be like a, a holiday weekend. Let's get started, you know, roughly from the beginning of when you first met Brian Pillman, because I believe the first time you would have met him would have been when you were working as an announcer in WCW. Is that right? Yeah, I think Brian started in WCW around 1989 or 1990, and I came in, you know, a year or so after that. So, yeah, my first exposure was to Brian is, you know, coming in as a C-Squad announcer and um, seeing him backstage, seeing him at, at different television events. I worked with him a little bit, did some interviews with him uh, early on, but that was it. So that's what I want to talk about first, and we're really going to focus this entire episode on when you were really steering the ship and what your interaction was like. We'll specifically focus on 93 to 96, but you were both there before that. So when he's just a coworker, he's an in-ring performer. Uh, you're the Ken doll with the microphone. Chat me up. What was your relationship like? What was your perception of him as a human being? You know, looking back, I think my first, uh, reaction to him or perception of him is he was a lighthearted guy. He was, you know, he was a fun guy to be around. Uh, I didn't spend a lot of time around him and, and, you know, let me kind of paint a picture too. So people understand, you know, the level of, of interaction that, that I had with a lot of people back then, you know, I, I would only see talent. I would fly into Atlanta usually on a Sunday night from Minneapolis when I first started. So I was still living there then. And I would spend Monday, Tuesday, maybe part of Wednesday, and I'd usually fly back to Minneapolis on Wednesday night. So the only time I would see talent typically was on a Monday night uh, if we were at center stage or if we were doing a syndicated show or sometimes on Monday night we would be in center stage. On Tuesday we would you know, travel to Anderson, South Carolina or wherever, uh, small, small markets around, in and around Atlanta that we could drive to very easily the next day and produce our syndicated shows. So I would see talent occasionally um, or I would see talent usually, I should say like you know, on a Monday – I may see talent. Uh, I don't work with some of those talents on Tuesday and maybe Wednesday. Uh, occasionally, I would stay longer in, in the beginning and do some uh, edit market kind of promos, as they used to be called. Um, and that was really more later on. But for the most part, I would only see talent on a very limited basis. And you know, when we got to a building, you know, I usually came dressed. Uh, with my makeup on, I, I, there, you know, center stage was a really, really small, uh, venue. There was no room for anybody. So I would typically get dressed before I left, get in makeup before I left. So I wasn't in the locker room with anybody. I was just get there, get my work, 
figure out what I was going to do, go over my notes, and I would do interviews with different people. And that's usually when I got to to get to know people. But it was on a very, very limited basis. Didn't hang out, didn't go to bars, didn't ride together. You know, it was very, very limited early on. Well, just before you get the helm, things are changing with Bill Watts. Uh, That's to say the least, of course. And one of the things he changes is the attitude towards the actual presentation we're pulling up the mats, nothing off the top rope anymore. And oh, by the way, we're not paying Brian Pillman all this money. He's too small. So now you're just a job guy or you're going to take a pay cut. That's the rumor and innuendo. And that's the story we've all heard is that he had an ironclad contract as much as it could be ironclad. And it was for substantial money somewhere in the range of north of $200,000 a year. And Watts didn't have plans to use him to that level and was looking to cut all the talents income that he could as a way to get WCW to turn a profit for the first time ever. Of course, that effort would prove to be unsuccessful and you would be the guy to do that. But according to the legend, when he's offered the opportunity to get some wins on TV and be featured for less money or lay down and make less, he agrees to lay down and make less. This had to be something that people were at least talking about. When did you first hear that Brian Pillman, Bill Watts story? Actually, I think you said that wrong. I think what he, what he, when he was given the option of getting wins and make less or not getting wins and making more, he made the decision to, to not get wins and make more. Yeah. My apologies. If I misspoke there, he, 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 his exact quote was, I want to be the highest paid jobber on the roster. Right. Right. No, he was a smart guy. And look, I, I wasn't very, I wasn't involved at all in, in a lot of the, uh, discussions, decisions, uh, when it came to Bill Watts approach to things, I certainly heard a lot because I heard a lot of people bitching about it. And, and as time went on, I became more and more familiar because my dislike for Watts, uh, became more and more evident to people. And the more they figured out, I didn't like the guy, the more people would talk to me. And I, you know, I got wind of what he was doing, but Bill Watts came into, to WCW, um, with a, with a throwback mentality. He had been out of the business for a long time. He had no real clue on how to turn the company around because he he hadn't been in the television business or the televised wrestling business in a long time. And, and the industry had changed. It's not a criticism of Bill necessarily. It's just a reality. And Bill came in, like so many others before him, and – convinced the executives at Turner Broadcasting that since he used to be successful in Mid-South Wrestling, you know, he knew how to turn the company around. And his idea was to save as much money as possible. And, and at, at its core, I don't disagree with his, his thinking in that regard. You know, it, it usually turning a company around involves two things. One, you know, cutting a cost and expenses. And number two, finding ways to increase revenues. Unfortunately, Bill came in with a very myopic view of how he was going to turn the company around. And that was basically to try to, to throw it back into sometime in late 1970 and run it the way he did when he ran Mid-South. And I know Mid-South was successful. And I know it's got a story, you know, kind of past. And a lot of great people came out of that, tori- that, that, that territory and all that great shit. I know all of that's true. But the fact is that was back in the 70s. And now we're in the 90s. 
And Bill Watts wanted to apply the same kind of business psychology and strategy, much like Vern Gagne would have wanted to do and a lot of other people that were successful back in the 70s or the, even the early 80s. But those rules, those strategies, those tactics were no longer viable. And one of the things that Bill did, you know, he was a big, imposing, impressive guy. He, he, he convinced everybody he knew how to turn everything around and they gave him carte blanche. And the first thing he did was started to cut the guts out of the talent budget. And as you pointed out, cutting the guts out of the, the television production quality. So while he was trying, you know, arguably to save money by cutting the guts out of the talent budget, he was also cutting the guts out of any interest networks or advertisers would possibly have in a television product because it was starting to look like Mid-South did back in the 70s. And it just wasn't going to fly in the 90s. It was so evident to me that you know, I was that was really the first time I was contemplating leaving WCW because I knew it was it was heading for a brick wall. I feel like I should mention here that a lot of the uh, source that we're going to use is the new Brian Pillman book, Crazy Like a Fox, which you should probably check out if you're a super fan of Brian Pillman. There was a quote in here that was brought to my attention that I didn't really realize, but apparently, and I think this has been well documented. The torch talk was a big thing, uh, during this bill Watts era, because he had multiple conversations with Wade Keller and Wade, of course, documented it all. And he made some sort of flippant response to Wade about the contractual status of Brian Pillman, something to the lines of if Brian Pillman is with this organization or not, it's not going to make a hill of beans. And that sort of attitude towards talent is really what rubbed a lot of the guys wrong. And I mean, even Tony Schiavone on what happened when has said that he got a pay cut under Watts as well. But as soon as you took over, you were able to sort of write the ship with a lot of guys, including Tony and bumped it back up to his old bunny is one of the first things you had to do to try to take the mop bucket and clean up behind bill Watts. In, in, in many more ways than just, you know, talent deals. I mean, Bill Watts left that company and people don't, you know, they, you know, and I love how these people, you know, and, and I, you know, I, I looked at the notes for this show a little while ago to kind of prepare myself for, for you know, the kind of questions you were going to ask me. And I had heard about this book, but I hadn't read it. I think it just came out about a year ago or so, six months ago. Hadn't read it. Didn't know too much about it. Haven't really heard much about it. And I'm looking at some of the shit that was written in that book. And honest to God, I, I literally, I would read those notes and I'd have to set them down. I started at about nine 30 this morning. I'd read these notes. I'd spent about four or five minutes reading some of the just ridiculous, completely fabricated bullshit that was in that book. And I get so hot about it. I had to set it down, go outside, throw the Frisbee for my dog for about 10 or 15 minutes, kind of settle myself down and come back and try it again. And I, you know, I finally at about two o'clock this afternoon, I said, fuck it. I'm just not going to do this to myself anymore. There was so much crap in that book, but what, what never ceases to amaze me is when people like Dave or this Jagoff that wrote this thing, when they supposedly have, they have all these facts and they've done all of this research. What they're really doing is regurgitating each other's 
rumor and innuendo and positioning it as fact. That's what it really is. It's the same with Alvarez's book. It's you know the death of WCW. It's the same with this piece of shit. I, and I would discourage anybody from wasting it. I would not buy this book. If you want to read this book, if you want to buy this book to really learn something, um, do not buy that book because what you're learning is complete fabricated bullshit. It's entertaining based on what, you know, the little bit of it that I've, that I read in the notes, I can, if you want to buy it to be entertained by all means, you know, drop a couple bucks. But if you want to read it to be, to, to have a better understanding, save your money. It's, it's, it's really bad. That being said, what people who write about WCW kind of fail to really spend too much time looking at is just how decimated Bill Watts left WCW. People have no idea how close WCW came to evaporating because of the, the, the many of the choices, not just, you know, some of the stupid things that Bill Watts said, but many of the choices that Bill Watts made and the way he conducted himself at Turner Broadcasting there. I mean, Ted Turner was literally reaching for the plug to unplug WCW from life support. He, he, he came within, he came very, very close, according to Bill Shaw, who was who talked him out of it, basically, and assumed the helm. Um, he came close to finally get thrown in the towel and saying, fuck it. It's not worth trying to save anymore. There's nobody that can do it. And that's really because of Bill Watts. He, he demoralized talent with the kind of, you know, th- things that he pointed out, you know, the comments that he, that he uh, according to you, made with to, to Wade Keller. And I believe them, by the way. I just didn't read them myself. Um the way he treated talent, the way he bullied people, the way he conducted himself and demeaned himself inside of the offices. Um, it, it was horrible. It, it was horrible. picking up the pieces after Bill Watts was you know, probably the, the, the most amazing experience I've ever gone through. And, and if I had to do it all over again, I'm not sure that I would. I think I know more now than I did then. I don't think I would have put myself through it. Well, one of the things we were put through in a good way was the Hollywood blondes. And I don't think that was anybody's original plan, certainly not Austin's or Pillman's, but they find themselves as tag team partners and eventually decide to make the best of it. And it is one of those tag teams that people talk about to this day and say, what if, what do you remember about putting these, these two together, whose idea it was and how you thought they were as a team? I would imagine that was dusty Rhodes' idea. Dusty was really booking at that time. Um, you know, and even when Busty, Dusty was booking, you know, it's it's really important, especially when I talk about people like Dusty or or anybody who's no longer here to correct me or to to to, to set the record straight from their perspective. I don't really like talking about people who are who have passed on, but even when Dusty was booking, there was a lot of influence, you know, on on or pressure, I should say on Dusty to make a lot of other people happy. Jim Ross had a big hand in, in creative. It may not have been directly and Jim Ross didn't get a lot of the heat, but you know, Jim Ross was also involved uh, on the creative side of things back in that day. But I would imagine it was Dusty um, that saw something in them and decided to, to put them together. So, Allegedly Raven is the person who suggests the name and they work out all the little details, you know, the necklaces, the, the vests, the trunks, the boots, the rolling, the camera on the way to the ring and they catch fire and quickly become 
among smart fans, one of the very favorite tag teams. What did you think of the actual tag team? I mean, this, some of this is happening before you're in control and some of it is once you sort of have the helm, what did you think of the presentation and what did you think the upside could be? Or did you think these are two single stars that have really been miscast here as tag guys? No, I didn't think that when, again, when, when they first became a team, I, I wasn't in control of anything. Um, but I enjoyed them. I mean, I enjoyed Brian. I liked being, you know, as I said earlier, when we started the show, when I first met Brian, I thought him to be a very funny, entertaining guy with an amazing sense of humor. He's very charismatic. Um, he had a great look for television. He was amazingly athletic and, and I, I, I thought very highly of him as a fan. You know, when a coworker, that was my opinion of him. Uh, Steve was, he was a little more quiet back then. You know, he wasn't, he certainly wasn't the Stone Cold Steve character. You know, we, we came to know decades later, but, um, you know, Steve was, how would I describe Steve? I wouldn't have described him this way back then because I was too green to, to use the terminology, but Steve, you know, in retrospect at that time, I think I would have categorized as a very, you know, a very solid hand, a very durable, tough, believable character, which I've always liked, even as a, as a fan, you know, in AWA. Um, but he didn't have quite the pizzazz and the pop that Pillman did, but what made them work together, in my opinion, back then was they were, they were contrasting personalities. You know, it's, that's what made it work is because they weren't exactly alike. And it was almost, you know, Steve was almost the fish out of water, doing the Hollywood blonde gimmick. And you could tell he was having a blast doing it, but it didn't come as naturally for him. I think, uh, as it did for Brian, because Brian was just naturally at that point, at least more charismatic or, or was perhaps more comfortable with that type of a character and putting himself out there in such a, a humor, you know, a, a, a funny way, you know, it was a comedic role to a certain degree. It was funny. Well, yeah, I mean, I think everybody really enjoyed their run, um, but not everybody maybe had the same vision for it because I know these guys were really reluctant to get started, but once they were doing it, man, they're off to the races and they're having a lot of fun. And allegedly Brian gets a little too into it and allegedly a doctor's visit. This is all from the book that you've brought in a great question. So I'm going to say the word allegedly a lot. Uh, says that maybe he's an alcoholic and he needs to pump the brakes when you were in control, you know, when you were running WCW, did you notice any sort of substance situations that maybe were taking a hold of Brian Pillman? I mean, we know what's going to happen with the Humvee and you know, the painkillers and, and obviously what happened with the end of his life, but here in, you know, the early days when you're taking over 93, 94, do you ever notice anything's maybe amiss with Brian with regard to substances? Sure. I mean, I saw it long before that. Well, not long before that, but I saw it before that when I was announcing when I was with one, and I'm not going to go into specific detail because it's, it involves two people who are not here to defend themselves or, or, or clarify my misperception. Um, but you know, I, I remember one night, um, uh, spending a little time with both Tom Zink and Brian. Uh, I think we were in Germany. And I just, you know, I mean, I've seen a lot of stuff. I've been around a lot of stuff and I can usually, you know, just look the other way or go about my business. But, you know, it was so bad that I, I wanted to make sure I wasn't anywhere. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to be in the same building. 
Um, yeah. So, I mean, I was well aware Brian partied hard. So did a lot of people, but, but Brian was, he took it to a whole new level. Okay. Fair enough. You know, I feel like, um, there's probably an opportunity for us to circle back and spend more time talking about the Hollywood blonde sometime, but before we sort of skip ahead to when we shift out of the Hollywood blondes, I do want to talk about the famous interactions they had with the flair for the gold and the feud he had, uh, with uh, both Arn and Rick, they do the spoofs. They have Brian dressed up in a wig and a robe, pretty hilarious stuff. what do you think of this? I, again, I thought it was amazing. I mean, it was I, from a performance point of view now, as you know, I wasn't a producer then I was a talent then and I guess an executive, you know, 93, 94, but as a producer now, when I look back at the, and I just, you know, I looked it up. I, I want, I knew we were going to be talking about this this week. So I wanted to go back and refresh my memory and look at some of this content as opposed to just trying to remember it off the top of my head. And, you know, I go back and I look at that stuff, especially knowing how it was produced and what little preparation and pre-production went into it. Just knowing those guys were improving 80% of it or more in some cases and the level, the, the, the level of entertainment that was in, you know, some of the segments was just I, really impressive. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Yeah. I mean, it's fun stuff. If you haven't seen it, you need to go watch it. And the gist of this is they're calling it a flare for the old and they're spoofing that these guys are ancient. And, and what's awesome with this is I think Rick's like 40 something and orange 30 something. I think orange, like my arm might even be like 34. So clearly not ancient, but hilarious stuff here from two young upstarts. Uh, and you, you know, what's really, you know, what's really interesting, Conrad, I don't mean to cut you off. But first of all, age is relative, right? right absolutely. To, 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 to young guys coming up who are in their mid twenties or late twenties. And you got a guy like Ric Flair who's in his early to mid forties. Fuck. He's old. He should retire. He shouldn't be in the ring. He's got my spot. He's taking my, you know, these old guys are hanging on <laughs> for dear life. And some of those guys, you know, that were in their twenties and you know late twenties, maybe even early thirties you know, are still doing the same thing today, <laughs> you know? So age is a very relative thing, but what's, what's really ironic to me, when you go back and look at that content of the, that segment, the flair for the old, and I, it didn't even occur to me until after I went back and looked at this in preparation for the show, look at the content of that segment and the people in it, and then go to that infamous interview that the NWO did when they were making fun of the four horsemen. Yeah. And look at the parallel. I mean, I was like, holy crap. It's like we ripped that shit off. 
I mean, it's, if, if you didn't know better, and I know better because I was involved in doing it, there was no intent to go back and use that flair for the old as a template. But by God, if I wouldn't have known better, I would have believed somebody did. I mean, it's crazy. You know, what's, what's fascinating to me about age, and we talk about this a lot on some of my other shows because I'm just obsessed with it because people look at flair in this era and they always say, oh, he's so old. And I get it, but he's 44 here. AJ Styles today is 41 years old. Like AJ Styles to me does not seem like Ric Flair in this era. And so like we're talking about Arn Anderson as being old here and Kevin Owens is 34, the exact same age that Arn was here. So it just sort of puts it in perspective because as you said, age is very much a relative thing. Obviously, you know, the, the matches these guys are having are being very well received. Uh, lots of people think this is going to be a really big deal for both of their careers and for a tag team division that honestly has not been the same without the Steiner brothers, uh, who had bounced over to the WWF. Talk to me a little bit about how the decision comes to be to say, you know what, let's split these guys up. Let's do something different. Here's again, to, to put the picture into its proper context, one would have to go back and look at whatever I'm assuming this is 93 here. We're in. Yeah. Towards the end of 93 is when it goes down. Okay. So I, I was the executive producer at that time. I wasn't an executive vice president. I wasn't a senior vice president. I had no control or direct responsibility, I should say, for wrestling operations, which meant it wasn't my budget. I didn't make the decisions. I didn't decide who got raises or who got cut. That was an entirely different side of the company. Bob Dew, um, if I, if I have my timing right, Bob Dew was the executive vice president of the company and wrestling operations and the arena side of the business and the marketing side of the business uh, reported to Bob as the executive producer. I wasn't even a VP at that point as the executive producer, the television production side of the business reported to me. And that budget was my responsibility. Now where there was some crossover occasionally, and it was mild. Okay. Is when, the, some of those decisions had to be made with regard to talent and saving money or managing the talent budget. There were times when I would be consulted, Eric, what do you think? Who, what do you, what's your opinion of this guy or that guy? But it was, I don't want to say it was a courtesy consultation, but it wasn't much more than that. But we were both, both sides of the business, the wrestling operations side, Bob Dew's side of the business, and my side, if you want to look at it that way, the television production side. We, the one thing we were both focused on was saving money because in 93, it was still hemorrhaging massive amounts of cash. And there was a constant from day one, the day I walked through the door as an executive producer, there was a constant pressure on all of us to try to find ways to save as much money as we possibly could. It was one of the primary mandates that I got um, when I was hired as an executive producer. And it was a very loud and clear mandate from Bill Shaw to the rest of the company as well. So th there was a constant pressure. And what, what happened, I think, with Brian and Steve wasn't so much of a booking decision – 
about them being together as a tag team as, as it was a financial decision. And I can tell you this for sure. Later on, when I did have control over wrestling operations, probably 94, 95, whenever that was, um, I, I, I was not a big fan of tag team wrestling, not because I didn't like watching it as a fan, but from an economic point of view, if you look at a tag team match, especially one with two guys that are breaking 200 grand or close to it, and they're in the ring with people of equal value. Now you've got, you know, you've got, you know, a million dollars worth of talent for a seven minute segment. Right. Or an eight minute segment. So from an economic point of view to, to have, you know, two high profile guys in a tag team match and you start looking at the, just the, the economics of it and you go, wait a minute. You know, I could have two separate stories going on here and two separate segments, you know, to, to fill the, my content requirements with for the same amount of money as I'm spending on one. And in order to have people of equal value or status with guys like Pillman and Austin at that time, you had to have other high dollar guys in the ring to tell stories with. So it limited what you could do in, in terms of your singles matches and your storytelling for all of the content that you had to fill. Uh, and put a, a real premium price tag on the talent that was involved in a six or seven minute match or one match for a pay-per-view. And it just didn't make economic sense. And that was probably the reason um, I know it was later on. And from what I can remember, my involvement in those discussions early on was if we can't afford it, we can't afford it. Let's get a two for one here. If we've got two two great guys with lots of talent, everybody agreed at the time they had lots of talent. It made a lot more sense from from a purely business point of view for them to be singles than it did for them to be uh, a tag team. So, chat me up here because it's in the book, and I know you've already brought into question the legitimacy of this. But allegedly, Greg Gagne is the guy who sits the boys down and says, "quote We're going to break up the team because." Well, you know, you're just not over. I can't be right. Right. I mean, I, I, you just explained that it was, it was a mathematical situation. I get it. It's financial. Decision. Yeah. But, but here, here's the deal. Now I look, I don't want to, I'll, I'll always be grateful and have a ton of respect for the Gagne family. You know, I still think about Vern Gagne on a regular basis. You know, I, and, and Greg was a good friend of mine for a long time. Uh, when I was in AWA and shortly after, um, but Greg would say stupid shit and Greg was never involved in the business side of the business. That's one of the things, again, not, I just don't want to go off on these books and st stupid shit that people have said and written over the years because I, I get tired of hearing myself do it, to be quite honest with you. But so much of the shit that's out there comes from people that were no, they, they were never near the business side of the business, and in this in this case, it wasn't a writer that just said something stupid. It was Greg. If he said it, I don't know that he said it, but if he's if he did say it, I can tell you for certain. Greg Gagne was never involved in thirty seconds of a of a of a discussion on the business side of WCW as to why decisions were made, and for Greg or for anyone to, you know, take a business decision that was made by the people in charge of managing that business and then communicate it to talent in a way that Greg's been around. the Greg was around the business for a long time. You don't just say to talent, well, we're going to break you up because, well, you know, 
you're just not over. I mean, I, 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 I've never heard somebody say that before like that. No, but I could see Greg doing it. Greg, Greg, look, Greg was especially then and, and still is, uh, to a degree kind of bitter and resentful. He's gotten over it a lot, you know, now that he's much older, but Greg was a guy, you know, he came up in the business. He, he was very opinionated, you know, his dad had achieved a ton, you know, he thought he should have more control. He, sh- he thought he should have had more influence in WCW than he ever had. And quite frankly, the only reason he was there was, you know, I had respect for him. You know, Greg, Greg reminded me, it still does to this day, when I reflect back and, and remember Greg laying out a match, Greg was a, he was a master at that. Greg really did have good psychology. He, he might not, he was not, he was never a star. He, he was in the position he was in because of who he was. He was athletic enough to, to carry that, that spot to a degree, but he was never a star himself, but that doesn't mean he didn't know how to do it. And he didn't know how to teach it. He was, he could have been one of the great teachers if he could have lost his resentment for not having a higher position. And that would come through. It would come through in a lot of things that he said and did. It came through in a lot of different ways. And it came through one at one point in, in, in such a an obvious uh, way that I, I fired him. <laughs> as, much, as loyal as I was to Vern and, and to Greg at the time, and as grateful as I was to, to – because I wouldn't have been in the position I was in if it not been for, for Vern and to a degree Greg. And then to have to fire the guy really hurt me to have to do it. But that was just Greg. He couldn't just come in and be part of a team. He had to always try to put himself just a little bit up. He just tried to put himself just a little bit over. And he sometimes he did it in very tactless ways. Can you give us an example? The, the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will? Well, the straw that broke the camel's back for me, the reason I fired him is when he went behind me, you know, him and a couple other guys, one of whom was no longer with us, so I'm not going to mention his name, uh, went behind my back and tried to convince Bill Shaw that they should be running the company and not me. And I got a phone call, and and he said, Eric, do you know these people are working for you? And do you know what they just tried to do? Explained it, and... I picked up, I was, in fact, I was traveling. I think I was down in, I think I might've been in Orlando at a meeting for Disney. And I I went to a payphone uh, on the property and that was it. Let them go. Let's keep rolling here. Let's talk a little bit about clash of the champions. Uh, Steve Austin has a one-on-one match with Brian Pillman. You know, it's probably been a while since you saw this one. We're talking about November 10th of 2000 or 1993 rather when when you guys put them against each other do you remember what the plans were when you're going to sort of send them off into singles competition do you have hey we see austin at this level whether i mean obviously we're not probably having a conversation about world titles for austin yet is austin like going to be u.s champ and pillman's going to be television champ or i mean where did you sort of see these guys in the hierarchy I didn't. I mean, that would have been a dusty kind of call. I mean, I think once we decided, once the company decided collectively, 
Again, you know, the wrestling operations was that side of the business, including the creative. The television production side of the business was my side, which had really nothing to do directly with creative. Uh, we, we had to be made aware and we were involved and we had to support the decisions that were being made, but we weren't calling those shots at that time. So um, in terms of, you know, I, I can't, you know, I can't put myself in Dusty's mind and, and suggest I knew what he was thinking. He, he and I certainly didn't have any conversations about it. Uh, and if we did, they don't stand out in my mind. Um, but I think the decision was, look, here's two very talented guys. Obviously, the Hollywood Blondes were over. We couldn't afford them as a tag team. Let's try to figure something out, something out for them as singles. It is my best. It's the best way I can answer that. Well, very quickly, Austin becomes the United States champion. So I know what you're thinking. Well, what's Brian doing? January 27th, Clash of the Champions, Brian Pimlin would wrestle Colonel Robert Parker in a match where the loser of the match would have to wear a chicken suit. This is real life, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Brian Pillman gets the win with a schoolboy. Meltzer would write, for what it was, this was better than expected. Two stars. What'd you think? I hated that kind of shit then. I hate it even more now. Um, it was so Memphis to me. Yeah, that's the, um, that's the word to describe it, man. Memphis. It and look, th- there was a lot of influence, you know. Again, on the creative side of things, and this is what people they don't want to hear it because it, it doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't fit the way they've been, you know, educated or conditioned to believe the way things operated in WCW at the time, but there were a lot of advantages of being a Turner broadcasting and having a a wrestling company being part of a television company. There were many, many advantages. There were many, many disadvantages. One of the disadvantages was nobody with the exception of me later on, probably starting in around 95 through 98 for a period of about 36 months. I pretty much had, I won't say a hundred percent control, but probably 90%. I still had people to answer to, right? But back in 93, 94, that wasn't the case. And if you're Dusty Rhodes and you're in a hot seat, or if you're later on Ric Flair and you're in that hot seat, meaning the the booker, if you will, or the head of creative, you've got a lot of pressure. You've got to make a lot of people happy. You can't just autonomously sit in your room, get a piece of paper and a pencil and decide, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. You, You couldn't do that. And I think that was one of the things that frustrated Dusty so much, understandably. And it's one of the things that drove Ric Flair, you know, batshit, understandably. Uh, because you're constantly serving multiple masters and some of those masters don't really have a good idea what's going on. Some of the other influences that were, you know, in the booking process at that time or the creative process were some of the wrestling people that were in it. Bill Dundee, Greg Gagne, Greg liked that kind of shit because it worked in Minneapolis. It was humor. It was a comedy spot. And, you know, a lot, a lot of people, and myself included, by the way, this isn't a criticism, we tend to go back to the things that we've had experience with and the things that we know. And that was the kind of stuff, you know, Bill Dundee and Greg Gagne and whoever else were probably sitting around you know, after work at night, because I think they shared an apartment together, drinking beer and decided to come up with it. And my guess is pitched it up to Dusty and he went with it. It was horse shit. I hated it. I, I just never liked that kind of Memphis crap a fucking chicken suit 
Well, listen, you guys got your shit together by the next pay-per-view and this is a fun match. Go out of your way to watch this one. If you're looking for some good wrestling this week, go watch super brawl four, February 20th from Albany, Georgia, specifically check this match out on one side. We've got Rick rude, Steve Austin, and Paul Orndorff, and they're going to wind up losing this match to sting Brian Pillman and Dustin Rhodes. They go 14 minutes and 36 seconds in a thunder cage match where Pillman would get to pin Austin, which makes it uh one apiece now so four and a quarter stars was the ranking for this one this would have been when you started to sort of hit your stride you're about to bring in hulk hogan things are about to change it feels like maybe the end of an era for wcw right here right before hogan comes in what do you remember about this thunder cage match with these six guys little to nothing I would literally have to go back and search it on the WWE network and look at it. It, uh, it just did not leave an impression on me. It would be written in the book that around this time, WCW was still trying to renegotiate contracts for both guys, both Austin and Pillman. They're wanting to get both guys to $190,000 and Austin wants a raise and Brian's just trying to hang on to what he's got. And allegedly they start fishing a little bit with their old buddy, Scotty Flamingo, who's now in the WWF as Johnny Polo. We know him as Raven. He's working in the office and he wants to sort of feel it out there. And at the same time, see what opportunities exist in all Japan. Of course, the WWF is not offering guaranteed contracts at the time. They're offering silly stuff like $150 guarantee for 10 dates or something. So in the end. They wind up re-signing. Did you have to sit down and handle any of the negotiations with either one of these two guys? We'll specifically focus on Pillman for the purposes of today. Oh, I'm not Again, the timing is so critical on that. You know, it's like. Allegedly his WCW contract expires and he was negotiating with both of you guys and you pull him from the shows and remove him from all future publicity and merchandise opportunities because the belief is he's going to be leaving. No, 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 no. And again, that's, that's the way that the, the narrative is shaped and it, it kind of, it, it suggests that I'm on the defensive or whoever made the decision was on the defensive, which is kind of the way that people like to write about WCW, um, back then and, and still to this day based on things that were written back then. Here's the deal. If a guy's contract is up, he's not under contract. Are you going to advertise him? Of course not. Are you going to promote him? Of course not. Are you going to put resources behind him? No. What the fuck are you going to do? You're going to put him on ice until you figure out what you're going to do with them. That's all it was. If his contract was up, and I'm assuming, you know, if, if the reporting is accurate, um, because I can't recall if, if, you know, the exact day that his contract came up, um, or the, the timing of his renegotiation. But I can assure you that if a decision was made to pull a guy off of TV and quit more and quit promoting him and advertising him, it was because his contract was up and it was just good business sense. Not because we were afraid he was going to go to the WWF. Allegedly, uh, there's supposed to be a title match here for the television title with Brian Pillman and Lord Steven Ringle at spring stampede. And even just a few days prior to the event on as, as late as Thursday, it would be written Pillman is going to be replaced by Patriot in that match. But 
just before the deal goes down, the actual pay-per-view, you managed to put a deal together in time for spring stampede 94, which is a hysterically awesome show. I say that because I think so many people sort of sleep on WCW 94 and just write it all off as Hulk Hogan stuff. And it's like the new WWF. This match is incredible. Uh, it's Steve Regal and Brian Pillman, but it's this entire card is filled with stuff like that. You've got a rematch of Ricky Steamboat and Ric Flair. It's a great pay-per-view spring stampede. 94 is a sleeper goes out in the Rosemont in Chicago. Uh, any sort of recollection of putting this deal together just before the pay-per-view probably done the day of or the day before. It would have been my call, I, but I would have had a lot of influence by that time as we were in, you know, starting in 93, I had no influence over, over talent really. Uh, I can express an opinion and I got invited to some of the meetings as I discussed earlier, but by middle of 94, um, my voice started getting a little bit louder because I was, <laughs> I had, I had been struggling from the time I took over or the time I was made the executive producer, uh, throughout 94 and certainly into 95, I had been fighting internally a lot with Bob Dew and, and some of the people on his side of the business, uh, when it came to economic issues, um, and you probably want to save that for another show, I'm assuming, but the louder my voice got in those meetings, the more sense Bill Shaw believed I made and my voice, you know, I, I, I basically built myself a little bit larger platform and I had always liked Brian from the day I met him as a talent to, to working with him as a talent to watching him as a fan slash talent. And at this point I didn't, I didn't want to lose Brian and I thought he was worth keeping. I feel like we should mention here that this is the last time we would see Brian on a pay-per-view match or, or any major event like that for about a year. He, he wouldn't be on another clash or anything like that. And around this same time, allegedly ECW finally reaches a deal as a result of a settlement in the lawsuit where, and this is directly from Meltzer, Heyman had asked for Austin and Pillman to do some ECW dates. He wanted Brian to wrestle Sabu, but you guys turned down that request and instead send Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton. Do you remember this Heyman settlement and sending Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton to ECW for a one-off? No, I don't remember it. And it would have been my call. I don't think. Um, if it's 94, I'm guessing flair was booking back then. Um, I have to go back and look at my notes, uh, because there was a transition there at a certain point. Um, I wouldn't have made the call around the end of may. You guys flirt with the idea of having Brian turn heel again, because Sherry is out scouting him for several matches. But the angle is essentially dropped and never followed up on, never even really discussed again. What was the idea there? Was the idea to, you know, he didn't really need a mouthpiece. What would Sherry have added to Brian's overall presentation, in your opinion? In my opinion, I mean, a, a ton. Um, Sherry was not just a mouthpiece, she was an amazing performer. She was a great character. Um, she was nuts. Brian was a little crazy. It would have been a great combination. Um, I think that the the chemistry and and just the contrast between them, I think they would have played off very well off of each other. 
in August, he winds up working a, a time limit draw with a young triple H here in WCW, which probably didn't happen that many times. Now, he finds himself working a lot of shows with Bobby Eaton and Lord Stephen Regal. And then I can't believe this is real life in October 14th, 15th and 16th, Brian Pillman lost to the fucking honky tonk man. Um, the book said, I remember WCW came out here, says Dave Meltzer. We went to a house show where he was in the first or second match. He being Brian Pillman and he lost to honky tonk man and he was livid. Honky tonk man was a great personality, of course, but in Brian's mind, his era was over and he's out there putting over the honky tonk man in a six minute match. And he wasn't happy to do that. Of course, when it came time for honky to finally wrestle Johnny B bad, he was ordered to lose, which is the entire reason they were building honky up, but honky refused and walked out of the company. Oh, oh, oh. Is that Dave Meltzer reporting that? Yep. No, this is from the book. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. We'll let Dave off the hook. This is just one. I mean, this is a minor example of the lack of credibility that whoever, I don't even know the guy's name that wrote this book and I don't want to hear it, but that statement is so ridiculously and verifiably without having to do much incorrect that it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to understand how anybody would believe anything else that was in that piece of shit book. Again, these are just guys regurgitating their own bullshit and putting each other over in the process of doing it. I fired that fat hillbilly. I couldn't wait to fire him. I was looking for an excuse to fire him. And when he came up and refused to do the job for Johnny B. Bad, I fired him on the spot. He didn't walk away from the company. He got shit canned because he didn't want to do a job. And there were people around it that saw it. And he's complained about it himself over the years. So for somebody to write that uh, he didn't want to do a job, so he just walked out of the company, is so factually incorrect. I submit to you, Your Honor, that the rest of the testimony is as equally fictitious. There. Cover the rest of the show. How long have you been waiting to call Hillbilly or Hockey Talk Man a fat Hillbilly? I think well, I've done it dozens of times. I love you. Can I just tell you that now? I love you too, Connor. Right? So let's talk a little bit about Cyber Brawl 1994. This is um, allegedly something that TBS was pouring a bunch of effort into and a bunch of advertising dollars into. They're trying to create like a video game award show, and they're going to do this and couple it with WCW Saturday Night. What do you, what, what do you remember about cyber brawl 94? I just remember, you know, it was, again, it was a TBS initiative. It came from Jeff Carr and he, who was the program director and a lot of the ad salespeople that, um, were over on the North side of the building who really didn't understand wrestling. Um, but our show, you know, the Saturday night show was a very high rated show. And one of the challenges that Turner had uh, and and probably still exists to this day, whether it's USA Network or soon to be Fox, is you know you get a hell of a good audience for wrestling, but it's very hard to migrate them 
into other content. In other words, they come, they watch, and they leave. So there was a constant effort, and it, it, it's only good business. I'm not faulting anybody for trying. But there was a constant effort to try to find the dynamic with the commonality between a wrestling audience and something else that would follow it. Co-programming, co-programming, whatever you want to call it. Uh, shoulder programming is the word that people use in the television industry today. And this was an example of that. Well, young kids must be watching wrestling. They didn't know that. They just assumed that based on a little bit of, you know, anecdotal research, probably more than anything else. Um, so let's just have, you know, this cyber thing follow WCW Saturday night and we can use a lot of wrestlers and because, you know, kids love video games and kids love wrestlers and their characters and we can, you know, kind of co-promote and that should work. That's probably about as much logic as went into it from, from the TBS side of things. Yeah, it was, um, suggested originally that they have a couple of TV stars like Leslie Nielsen do a, a speech about violence and video games and then have a couple of bodybuilders beat up the wrestlers and William Regal and Brian Pillman have nothing to do with that. And instead, uh, do a wrestling skit. The bodybuilders are next. And it's not too long after this, we see a November 19th appearance from Brian Pillman in the ECW arena. He's going to be teaming with Shane Douglas here to lose to Ron Simmons and Scorpio. And a, a lot of the talk of the cooperation here is covered in the observer. Meltzer would write the only reason WCW was cooperating with ECW for this and only this show sending Pillman, Sherry and Kevin Sullivan was because it was out of a court settlement for WCW using the name when worlds collide. The sides reached a compromise with Brian Pillman, who dangerously has wanted from the start more than anyone in WCW except Austin and WCW had refused to uh, allow him to be used. Do you remember this, uh, when worlds collide settlement and was anybody, I mean, was Pillman happy to do it? Anything you can remember about that? And then, no, there's, you know, I can't tell you, <laughs> I can't tell you what was going through Brian Pillman's mind at the time. I can't tell you if he was happy, if he was sad, or if he gave two shits. Um, it's impossible for me to do that to suggest otherwise would be dishonest. Um, do I remember anything about, look, I think most of the lawsuits that, that arose out of ECW were threats of more than anything else. Uh, Paul didn't have the money to sue anybody, uh, at the time and Turner broadcasting was reluctant to get into any kind of lawsuit. So basically all Paul had to do was make a threat or two. And, you know, somebody on the legal side of Turner would say, would you please go make nice with this guy and make him go away? That, that was the extent of the lawsuit or the settlement associated with it. All you really had to do was pick up a phone and call somebody over at Turner Legal and make a threat. And I would get a phone call from Turner Legal saying, please go make this go away if you can. That's all it was. Well, to clarify, I wasn't saying, what do you think Brian was feeling at the time? I wanted to know if he expressed anything to you, but no, he, I'll no, be he careful didn't. with the way I phrase that in the future, since you're going to be so goddamn specific. No, but look, I'm being held accountable here to this stuff, right? What? Not by you necessarily, but people that listen to this, you know, they, they, they don't want any slack. They don't, they don't want to, they don't want, they don't want to assume anything. So I have to be specific, you know, whether you phrase it incorrectly or I interpret it incorrectly, I want to make it really clear that if the question that I thought I heard was, you know, 
Do you recall how he felt about this? My answer is fuck. No, I have no idea how he felt in about the future. It. I'll say, did he tell you how he felt? And then we'll all be on the same page. Uh, yeah, work. around December, Brian films an episode of Baywatch and you guys obviously had a relationship with them, but when it comes to wrestling again, he's pitching you and it's reported that you're going along with this idea. Let's bring back the light heavyweight division, but this time let's call it the cruiserweight division. Whoa, 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 whoa. Fucking pump the brakes. Where did this come from? From the book quote, after some convincing by Pillman, Bischoff had agreed to bring back the light heavyweight division, but rechristen it as the cruiserweight division and base it around a heel flying. Brian Bischoff had eyes and ears open to talent around the world. And was looking to bring in hot prospects like Chris Benoit and Sabu. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. So, so somehow this clairvoyant motherfucker that wrote this trash somehow who I'm, who I've never met nor had one conversation with somehow he can figure out what was going through my mind in 1994 and knew what I was thinking about wanting to create a cruiserweight division a year later but somehow figured out a way to make it Brian Pillman's idea. That's so fucked up. That's some, that's some messed up shit right there, brother. So I'm taking it that it was not Brian Pillman's idea. Fuck. No, that was not, it was not at all. Brian Pillman's idea. Not at all. Not re, not in a million freaking years. And it wouldn't. And by the way, the cruiserweight division or a lightweight division wasn't something that I would have entertained in 1994. I wouldn't have seen the need for it. Is it, um, can you clarify what Jimmy Hart's role was here? What was he had none. Okay. He was Hulk Hogan's guy. He traveled with Hulk. He, he came as part of the deal. Nothing against Jimmy. I love Jimmy Hart. He's a good man. And he's, he's, he's seen it all. He's been a part of it all. I'm not saying anything negative about Jimmy, but Jimmy came in with Hulk. He had no role other than to be Hulk's guy. Okay. No. Um, why was it, was it, did this jackass who wrote this tripe suggest otherwise or no. did Dave or where, where did this come? That's it's the first time in a while I've heard anybody even suggest that Jimmy had a role in WCW in 1994. It suggested that Jimmy had a relationship that allowed Brian to get a shot with Baywatch. Maybe. Oh my God. Oh my God. Here's how that happened. Okay. Let me rephrase the question for you, Eric, out of curiosity, how did it come to pass that Brian Pillman got an opportunity to work on, on Baywatch? No, I'm going to be Eric. Well, Conrad, Here's how that went down. Doug Schwartz, who was the executive producer of Baywatch, who was also the executive producer of Thunder in Paradise, was a huge wrestling fan. A gentleman by the name of Kevin Beggs, who is now, I think, the CEO of Lionsgate, by the way. Um, Kevin was a producer on Baywatch and on Thunder in Paradise. Hulk when, when they said, look, we want to get some wrestlers on Baywatch, turn them over to me, and we created that opportunity. Jimmy Hart didn't have anything to do with that, and Jimmy Hart certainly didn't have any stroke with the, with the producers of Baywatch. Other than he probably knew them and was around them um, when Hulk was filming um, Thunder in Paradise, because I'm sure Jimmy – I don't know for a fact, but I would assume Jimmy would have been around, uh, around Hulk a lot at that point too. But no, Jimmy did, 
Jimmy didn't pull any strings to get Brian Pillman an opportunity on Baywatch. Well, he's also suggesting in the book here that Jimmy was helping with the production for WCW. Was that not the case at all either? Oh my God. Oh, here it is. Uh, a close up, uh, video feature was recorded of Brian going into Pillman's real life background and a series of squash match victories were taped for television. While Jimmy Hart was gung ho on the new Brian Pillman, others got cold feet. The first match that saw Pillman go by his new name of California. Brian was taped for the WCW Saturday night show against George South was redubbed to remove the name and stick with flying Brian. When Jimmy, I'm going to try really hard because I do like Jimmy and it's not Jimmy's fault. This asshole wrote such ridiculous shit. So I'm going to be careful how I characterize this. Jimmy came in to WCW with Hulk in 94. All right. Jimmy's job was to make sure Hulk's rooms were booked properly. Hulk had an easy, uh, Hulk had got through the airports easily. He's his real life manager of sorts. He's his real life manager. He made sure that the Hulk Hogan merchandise was available and tried to make sure that people in the audience were wearing their Hulk Hogan shirts. That was it to, for, for this complete, this idiocy to make its way to print. And oh, by the way, I read as I was Googling, looking for this stuff, Dave Meltzer voted this piece of shit book, whatever it is, toilet paper between a hardcover as the best wrestling book of 2017. Yep. And here is an example of the kind con- the, the quality of content and accuracy that Dave thinks is a great wrestling book. Jimmy Hart, Jimmy Hart would come in whenever Hulk came in. When Hulk wasn't there, Jimmy wasn't there. He literally would fly in and out with Hulk. That was it. Now, later on, that changed. But during this period of time, this is, again, you know, early on when you and I first started doing these shows, I used to make jokes about kernels of truth. Mm-hmm. This is where these assholes sit back 20 years later, right? After they've been regurgitating each other's bullshit and believing each their own and each other's nonsense and putting each other over in the process as being really smart, smart, knowledgeable people. This is where someone takes a little piece of information. Well, Jimmy Hart was very involved in production and, and booking and was very involved in WCW Saturday night starting around 97 or 98. So let's just write about the fact that he was instrumental in and involved in production in 1994. Fucking completely fabricated nonsense with no basis and not even a little bit of kernel of truth. It's just, it's like I said before, it's like connect the dot over here. Oh, look, there's a dot. It's about eight miles away, but I see the dot. Well, wait a minute. There's another one. It's, it's over in the other direction and it's only four miles away. Well, let's connect those two dots. And all of a sudden you've got a picture of the universe. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. People, people should, God help me at this stage of my life. I try not to get upset. I really don't. It doesn't pay to get upset. There's no money in being upset. So I try really hard not to be, but when I hear this kind of 
lies and fabrication and bullshit. And I, I read how these guys are putting each other over. And Dave awarded it to the Wrestling Observer Book of the Year for 2017. Stick that book up your ass because that's where it belongs. I'm done. Okay. Let's, um, yeah, I don't know what else I can even follow up with here. Cause now I'm starting to wonder about any of this stuff. Well, you should be wondering about any of it for God's sake. It doesn't even make any sense. All you have to do is think about it for five minutes. There's nobody on the planet that would have suggested for a fucking minute that Jimmy Hart was involved in production and calling those kind of shots. In 1994, not for a minute, not one person that had ever stepped foot within a mile of a WCW production would have, that could have never crossed their mind. But yet this jackass writes it and Meltzer puts it over. Are you kidding me? You should, you should question it. Hopefully if we achieve nothing else in our time together on this wonderful Sunday afternoon, we've achieved that. So let's talk about, um, and th- there'll be lots of time for us to talk more about the blondes because you were allegedly playing hokey pokey with the idea of putting them back together. If you believe what's in the newsletters, what's in the books and what's in the magazines. I mean, even the old WCW magazine suggested it that, Hey, maybe the blondes are getting back together. We didn't course, print the truth in the magazine. I'm not suggesting that. You My did. God. It wasn't, it wasn't, an, it, 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 it wasn't the Wall Street Journal. I didn't quote it as, as if it were. I'm saying I'm going to table all of the, you know, here's what I want to get to. I want to get how, you know, you're saying you didn't print the truth in the magazine and everybody's a dumbass. <laughs> no, I'm not saying everybody's a dumbass. I'm saying when, when people say to me, but yeah, you even wrote about it in the magazine. Well, fuck. Yeah, we did. We worked the magazine just like we worked a match. No, I get that. But that, that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm saying the guys were unhappy with their singles pushes and you're trying to, it feels like figure out what we can do with Brian Pillman, who does seem to be floundering a little bit. I mean, you loan him out to ECW. He goes and does the Baywatch thing. You're saying this resurgence of the cruiserweight thing, not really his idea, but we don't really know what the plan is. And it is. didn't happen, by the way. I know. No, but, no, but what, nor did what, it even happen. That, let's not forget that. But what did happen, you don't recall. So I'm trying to... Over, I'm well, I can't to, recall it if it didn't happen, motherfucker. Come on! Then what, what can you recall that did happen? You see, that's my challenge with this show sometimes, is I've given the task of turning chicken shit into chicken salad, and then whenever there's any sort of error that anybody else has, you can't wait to poke holes in it and say, that's not what happened. But then when I press on what did happen, you're like, I don't recall. So what do you want to know? To ask, what do you, what is it that you would like to know happened? I'm trying to paint a picture where you don't really know exactly what to do with him. Now that the tag team has been split, he's about to have a lot of personal stuff pop off, um, his ex-wife and there's some visitation issues. We've addressed that. Maybe he has some substance stuff going on. He's going to, um, be a little frantic with a situation with, um, the mother of his children and there's lots of domestic stuff going on. There's a DUI. He spends the night in jail. His life starts to spiral a little bit here first professionally, but now personally, and eventually the roots of this loose cannon character and persona are going to be born. And that's what I wanted to sort of transition to here. 
what can you tell us about what you knew of his out of the ring, non kayfabe, real life family and substance, just real life shit coming his way? We, I mean, obviously we all knew about it to so two different degrees. I wasn't super tight with Brian. We, we did communicate very well. Um, it's written in I the had, book that you, you met with him and, and he explained the whole situation to you. And allegedly you assured him that the arrest would not be held against him. Do you remember having that meeting? I don't think that that happened. Okay. I don't think that happened. There, no, look, there may have been a phone call. Um, not a meeting. Okay. Uh, Brian didn't live in Atlanta. Right. He wouldn't have flown in just for that express purpose. So there may have been a conversation in the arena. There may have been a phone call, likely a phone call. Um, I can imagine that I would have said at that point, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. I wouldn't have made a commitment at that point. Look, here's, Here's why it's hard for me. I mean, you have your frustration with the show, and so do I. You, when when I'm asked a question, a very specific question, did you have a conversation with – and I'm not knocking the way you asked the question, by the way. I'm just trying to describe why sometimes it's so very hard to explain in detail um, without you saying, hey, I don't know. So many of these questions come in a very uh, uninformed way or or misinformed way. In other words, you're reading something that was written in a book by a guy who I think we clearly, well, at least I'm convinced, um, doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about and was making shit up. And I'm asked to respond to a specific quote in that book. Now, there there may be some truth to that. Did I know? The question from you was, did I know that Brian was having all these troubles and all these problems? Did I know he had a drug problem? As I suggested earlier in the show, yes, I knew that. Did I know that he did I know that he drank too much? Yes, and clearly I knew that. Did I know that he had he was having a lot of personal problems? Yes, he and I talked about that on the phone. You know, we didn't hang out together. We didn't have that kind of a relationship. Um, but I was I was well aware of it. If that's the question, do I recall telling him that getting arrested for a DUI was something that he didn't have to worry about? No, I don't remember that. Um, can I suggest to you, in all honesty and clarity, that w- w- with a guy who is under contract, unless it was something that was pretty fucking horrible, uh, and a DUI wouldn't have have. Um, fallen under that category, we wouldn't have been able to fire him for getting a DUI. Christ, we would have had to fire half the company, including the executives that worked there. Well, he, um, he kind of flips out over his wife, not handling the, their daughter the way she should have allegedly she was supposed to pick her up and then doesn't. So then he goes out looking for her. Eventually she's found days later, uh, it, this is all drug related. She's not dead, but, uh, it's not going the way Brian would have liked. And he's very upset by all of this and winds up sort of acting out. The police get involved. And before you know it, uh, he, he has to take a breathalyzer test. He gets a DUI. He's charged with illegal drug possession, but it turns out that it was just an anti-inflammatory tablet, but it wasn't marked. It wasn't in their uh, accurate pill bottle. So they just charged him with that too. Ultimately. Um, that winds up not being as big of a deal, but it is, you know, it sets the, as you like to say, tone and tenor for what's about to happen, you know, in the future. 
Uh, he's back on pay-per-view for the great American bash, 1995, Alex Wright beats him. Uh, that tells you where his wrestling career is going. I guess three and three quarter stars is what Meltzer would give it. And it's been a while since he's been here, uh, on pay-per-view, uh, like a year absence here away from pay-per-view, which shows you that there's really just not a lot to work with. One of the things that no, no, wait, wait, no, it doesn't just show you that it doesn't just show you that. Put yourself in Vince McMahon's shoes or my shoes at that time, or Ric Flair's shoes, who was booking at that time, I believe. Eric, you don't even know what I was referencing for you to respond. No, but, but no, no, but you just made that. You just made the statement. I said, you just made the statement. There was obviously, you know, nothing for him. No, no, no. I said, there's not a lot for, uh, for, to work with. I'm talking about us doing a show about a guy who wasn't on pay-per-view for a whole year. So it's hard. Right. It's hard for me to say, "Oh, he had this big match at this pay per view." He wasn't fucking on. No, him but for a whole no, year. he wasn't. But the guy was having, as we've just detailed in great length, he was having a massive amount of problems at that time. Why I, would anybody put a guy who, have, who was having those kind of problems in a in a in a in a big match and you, put a lot of resources? Get off your heels, him. motherfucker! I'm not talking about what you didn't do with him. I'm saying we, me and you, right now, don't have a lot to talk about for his in-ring stuff because he wasn't on pay-per-view. I'm not saying you didn't have anything for him. I'm not criticizing you for that. Clearly the guy's got his fucking life spiraling and circling the drain at this point. I'm trying to say as far as in ring, uh, fucking get in there and let Alex Wright beat your ass on pay-per-view. And that's the first time I've seen you in a year. That's all we can talk about because he didn't do anything for the last year. <coughs> Not you didn't do anything with him. We, me and you right now, we don't have a lot to talk about there. Here's what we can talk about. He was on the phone all the time with your best friend, Dave Meltzer. <laughs> and... He's putting over, uh, when he's over in Japan in June, this is June of 95, uh, through July, he's wrestling black tiger and wild Pegasus. We know them as Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero. When Brian comes back, is he putting over black tiger and wild Pegasus as much as everybody else was? Not to me. Um, I was getting a lot of. You know, I was dealing with Brad Ringens was the guy that I communicated, you know, with about New Japan. He was kind of like the American agent. Brad was very high on them. Uh, Masa Saito and I would talk. Masa was very high on them. We've talked about this before as it relates to the eventual launch of the cruiserweight division. But but Brian didn't have those that that type of conversation with me. Um, we we just didn't talk about that. When he comes back, you guys put him with Buff Bagwell and they actually work a match on Clash of the Champions, or I guess it's main event, which is right before Clash of the Champions. It gets three stars in the Observer. And this is one of the first shows where Kevin Sullivan has taken over the lead as Booker for instead of Ric Flair. Do you recall why a change was made here in uh, late July of 95? Between Flair and Kevin? Yeah. Rick was in an impossible situation in that he had so much focus on himself because he was Ric Flair, the character. Sure. And there was so much emphasis on him um, to be the booker and to be the star of the show is an impossible situation for anybody. And 
you know, I mean, you, you probably know Rick as well or better than I do at this point. I'm sure you know much better than I do at this point. Back then, you know, I, I can say my opinion of Ric Flair is he didn't, he didn't want anybody mad at him. You know, you can't be in that seat and not have heat. Right. On any given night, if there's 24 guys on the card, 12 of them are going to love you and 12 of them are going to hate you. And Ric Flair was not the type of guy that wanted any heat with anybody. And you can only imagine the amount of heat that he was under in 1994 when he's helped me. Really, Rick is as or more responsible in many ways of getting Hogan into WCW than I was. I was I was able to manage it from the financial side of the equation. Rick was the only person that could give Hulk confidence on the creative side. Um so you can only imagine the pressure that he was under when he was responsible for bringing Hulk Hogan, at least partially, uh, into the company. And now he's booked with Hulk Hogan. And and by the way, all of the talent underneath were all pissed off that Hulk Hogan was coming in because they all knew that the, the, you know, the spotlight was going to be on him. So that created a tremendous amount of personal pressure on, on Rick, and he knew he couldn't handle it, and so did I. So the change was made. Let's talk about the proposed match with Ric Flair and Brian Pillman. Supposedly the plan here on WCW pro in early August was that Pillman was going to win by forfeit because Arn and Flair get into an argument in the dressing room and Flair just walked out. And that obviously gets a win wink, wink for Brian, but really it's telling a great story with Rick and Arn that a lot of people sleep on that fall brawl 95 match. Is something that has got to be a highlight in Arn's career, but behind the scenes, Brian's looking to change his style up a little bit. And in his conversations with Dave Meltzer, he would tell him that he knew he couldn't keep doing the flying Brian thing. His body was not going to let him. He had a lot of back problems and he was looking for something else. And he winds up being in a, a, a prime spot when you guys debut nitro because you go back to a famous match that a lot of us really love from one of the early super brawls, you get Brian Pillman in the ring with Jushin Liger. That's a pretty cool deal. And that happened on September 4th, 1995 Pillman gets the nod. What was the thinking in putting this match together? I guess it's what three years after the original. Is that right? Yeah. This is where it gets a little easier for me to talk about creative decisions because by this time I was more involved, not exclusively, um, but more involved. And one of the things leading up to Nitro, you know, when, when Ted basically threw that on my lap and said, go head to head with WWF on USA Network. I've said this before. I won't go into great detail here. I knew I had to do something different. I knew I couldn't be WWF light. I knew I couldn't survive if I tried to be better than the WWF at what the WWF did. I knew I had to be different than the WWF. And if you go back and you look at the WWF product, you know, during that same period of time, they didn't have a lot of international vibe to them. They didn't present a lot of the, the kind of fast-paced international action that I knew back then that I liked. 
By this time, I had been working more closely with the Japanese. By this time, I was more determined than ever. Not, not determined. I was more convinced than ever that if Nitro was going to be successful, it had to present the product that was so much different than, when, than, than what was on the WWF. So it made sense to me for all of the reasons to bring in Jushin. And, and put him up against Brian because we were all convinced that we'd be able to get a hell of a match out of it. And it would be much different than anything people normally saw in WCW on a regular basis and certainly different than anything that they were able to see in WWF. Well, let's talk about uh, what you decide to do with him next because that's obviously a distinction that he'll never lose, being the first match on Nitro. That's a cool little moment. But after that, we're off to Fall Brawl, 1995, and... Not only did we get Arn Anderson and Ric Flair, we also got Brian Pillman and Johnny B. Bad. Johnny B. Bad gets the win in 29 minutes. Uh, Johnny B. Bad gets a bit of a bad rap, and guys like me have a lot of fun talking about Mark Merrow and this silly Johnny B. Bad character. But the match got four stars. Why were you so high on Johnny B. Bad? I don't think I was. In fact, I know I wasn't. I, I wasn't down on him. Johnny B. Babb was really a character that was created by Dusty Rhodes. And again, if you go back to probably 93, I'm guessing that's when Johnny came in, maybe 92, 93. Um, Dusty liked that kind of little Richard vibe and, and character that, that Mark had, and he thought it would work. That was at a period of time when characters were really driving the WWF. I'm, I'm guessing that that was the logic behind Mark, but I liked Mark as a person, um, as a performer, he clearly wasn't a Chris Benoit esque or a Eddie Guerrero or even flying Brian at that time. Um, but he was a good character. He got a great response. He, he worked really hard. Um, there was a lot of things I liked about Mark, but, um, he certainly wasn't the technical wrestler that Brian was. That's not the last time we see Brian that night though. During the Ric Flair, Arn Anderson match, Pillman comes to ringside and punches Flair who punches him back. But as Flair turns his back, Pillman gives him a kick to the head that leads to an Arn DDT in the pin. And the next night on nitro, Brian loses to Flair in about five minutes with the figure four. And the next week. Brian and Arn are doing an interview where they're talking about wanting to reform the horseman. How does this idea come together? You know, it's interesting that you said that around this time, Sullivan was put in charge, but we're, we're putting the horseman back together, which feels like it would have been a flair decision. How does the decision come together to reform the horseman and involve Brian Pillman? It would have been Kevin driving that. And I can only assume, and I would have been supportive of it. It was a way to kind of, I don't want to say keep Rick happy, but, you know, Rick had just come out of booking, had a lot of heat on him. Kevin was trying to probably get along as best as he could and make things right again and get everybody back on the same page and do his job. I don't know. It's a question that maybe Kevin and I can answer together. Um, I'd have to talk to Kevin and ask him what was really driving his decision um, to do that, but I would have been supportive of it. That's for sure. So this is all going pretty well here in September, but in October, things personally take a bad turn for Brian. Uh, apparently his ex-girlfriend Rochelle 
who he had had the baby with had lost custody of the child to Brian and called Brian distraught. She had had addiction issues and decides life's become too difficult and shoots herself in the head while she's on the phone with Brian Pillman. I can't imagine what that's like, but not only did it happen it happened while he was at Joey Mag's house. Is anybody in the back talking about this? This is maybe the most crazy thing you could hear about. Shocking. I think more than anything else. I mean, it's like anybody's really prepared or, or knows how to handle a situation like that. What do you even say other right. than try to be supportive? Um, certainly I heard about it. I was aware of it, but you know, I wasn't with Brian at that time. Um, I wasn't at Joey Mag's house is what I meant to say, obviously. And again, Brian and I weren't so close that he picked up the phone immediately and called me. Um, so I don't think I interacted with Brian until, you know, several days after the fact. Just three days later, he's uh, headlining nitro with Arn to take on Flair and Sting. He doesn't miss a single date and tries to just keep busy, I assume. That gets us to Halloween Havoc 1995. And on that show, it's another famous Ric Flair swerve. He's teaming with Sting, and they're taking on Arn and Brian Pillman. And of course, Flair turns on Sting. And it looks like the horsemen are put back together. You know, even though if you're an old school fan, you probably saw this coming a mile away. This was a classic angle. And it's pretty cool to see Brian Pillman involved in something after that long period where it didn't feel like he really had anything to sink his teeth into. What'd you think of this flare turn of Halloween havoc? I liked it. Look, the, the horsemen were still, you know, going back to the NWA in the early, you know, the, the latter years of the NWA in the early years of WCW, the four horsemen were still, you know, they were very iconic, you know, to that TBS audience. And, and so was Ric Flair. And so was Arn Anderson. Um, I know Kevin thought a lot of Brian, and I'm sure that's one of the reasons why he wanted to make that happen. Um, but it all made sense to me. And like I said a few minutes ago, I, I dug it. I was very supportive of it. It's kind of fun because Meltzer would write that Brian called him later that night and said it was the greatest night of his entire career. It meant he was doing an angle with Sting, so he's working with main event guys, and he's now in the Horseman. And it wouldn't be too long. You guys would add Chris Benoit as the fourth member of the horseman. And I'm sure we'll talk about that another time. Those guys knew each other though, or you would have to assume they did from their days in Calgary and stampede wrestling. Let's get to world war three. Of course, Brian was involved in that one as well. Everybody was, it's a 60 man battle Royal. And the next night on nitro sting and Luger are going to team up to beat Brian and Arn, but he's officially a horseman here. He's got around five or six months left on his contract at this point. He's roughly 33 years old and he's obviously eyeing the future. Hey, what am I going to do next? What am I going to do now? Uh, it's written in the book that he was getting $225,000 per year. And he assumes that he's probably going to be able to do a little better than that. If the horseman push continues, are you having conversations with him about six months out? Because the the next thing we hear in the book is that you're going to offer a pay cut. Are you still trying to cut costs <clears throat> in late 95 or not? Is that not the case? 
It's not the case. It's not the case at all. So there were two questions there. One was, <clears throat> was I in discussions with him at this time about his deal? The answer to that is yes. Was I, the second point that you made, I want to be clear, I was not trying to cut Brian Pillman. That is a complete fabrication. I didn't mean cut him like off the roster. I mean, are you trying to get cut? No, I'm not. I wasn't trying to cut his salary. I apologize. I apologize if I wasn't clear. No, I wasn't trying to cut his pay. We were not still operating on the Bill Watts theory. Um, we absolutely had had no intention of asking Brian Pillman to take a cut in pay. What Brian and I did talk about, and this is the part which I find, you know, the most interesting, in, at least in the relationship that Brian and I had, was Brian was Brian was very honest with me in, in, in terms of not being happy with his character or, or really wanting to do more, not in a negative way. He didn't come in and he didn't bitch and he didn't moan. Um, he, he was like, look, what can I do? What can I do to make more money? How can I become more valuable to this, co this company? I mean, he took a very proactive and constructive approach to it. He clearly wanted to make more money. Yes, he, he did want a, a raise. He did see, as, as did everybody. When Once Hogan walked through the door, everybody realized that Turner was willing to spend money again. That was, you know, one of the biggest challenges of bringing Hogan in, quite honestly. Uh, everybody thought that, you know, they were all going to get a huge raise. Or you had other people that thought they were going to get cut because all the money had to go to Hogan. It was one of two camps. But Brian was very proactive and very constructive in his approach to it. And this is where he and I started talking, at least initially, in the very beginning, about what to do with his character and how we could utilize him in a different way. Well, it would be written here that the, the person who sort of puts this bug in his ear to be this, what would, I guess we'll call the loose cannon character is Kim Wood who helped Brian get into wrestling and encouraged him to do so. And he was always fascinated that the road warriors tried to, you know, still be in character as much as they could. And bruiser Brody is probably the embodiment of that, where a lot of people thought bruiser behind the scenes was bruiser in front of the camera as well. I mean. That became the edict quote. The idea became to con the con men, fuck the fuckers. Uh, the thing that Arthur Jones taught me is that I taught Brian and that I taught Brian is that nobody's easier to con than a con man. And the idea here is to throw enough of the other wrestlers and the boys off with this quote unquote, bizarre behavior that people are going to start to wonder, has he himself gone nuts? Now, this is what I've been itching to talk to you about, of course, because we're going to get into the. The silliness of what's about to happen. But before we do, there's something written in the book here specific to you. I don't know if you saw it in the notes, but I can't wait to ask you about it. Brian had told Kim about how Eric Bischoff had photos of himself as a kickboxer on the walls of his office. He explained how when wrestlers would go in to talk with Eric for contract negotiations, Bischoff would take out his false teeth, put them on a plate that sat on his desk <laughs> and crack his knuckles before starting the conversation. This not so subtle gesture was to indicate <laughs> that while they were there to talk business, he was the boss and willing to fight. If things weren't going to his liking, the book also oh says whether Bischoff was legitimately a tough guy or not is completely irrelevant. The point was that he went out of his way to project that he was. Oh my God. Stop. Please don't say anymore. 
who the who was this guy that wrote this well you said you didn't want me to tell you his name but crazy like a fox is the name of the book and all right this okay so whoever this jackass is that is so absurd fucking absurd number one I haven't had, I I have never had a picture of myself doing martial arts on my wall anywhere, ever. I I really, in any home, in any office, or in fact, I don't even have a picture of myself doing martial arts anywhere. I don't even have one in a fucking storage unit. This is like you telling me there's no Santa Claus. All right. Can we just go with this? I need, no, I'm not doing it, man. Cause this is the kind of, and this is why Dave Meltzer nominated this for the best book of 2017 here's another fact okay i'm just going to hit you with facts number one i have not ever owned a picture of myself competing in martial arts ever occasionally Sonny ono will send me something digitally on twitter or on facebook that he finds in his basement and i look at it and i laugh and that's it I may have posted one on Twitter several years ago as a throwback Thursday moment because I look like a fucking idiot putting a headband on like the karate kid, and I thought it was comical. That's it. So there were no pictures on my fucking wall in my office other than the ones that were there when I got the office. That's number one. Number two. The whole took his teeth out, sat back, and cracked his knuckles to try to intimidate wrestlers. Are you fucking kidding me? Number one, it started with kind of a joke that dated back to probably 1992 or early three when I got invited to a a Christmas party at Dusty and Michelle's house and I had way too much to drink. And as a joke, I used to have my two front, three front teeth right in the very front of my, my teeth got knocked out. And I had what they call a flipper plate at that time. And what that meant was I could very easily, I could just wipe my hand very quickly in front of my mouth. I could flip that plate out of my mouth into my hand and smile and it'd be a gaping hole in, in in my teeth. And then I could very quickly, almost like a magician, wipe my hand right in front of my face and the teeth would be there again. And I'd put out a big smile and it used to freak Dusty out. He laughed his ass off. I did it at a Christmas party, so everybody knew that I had a partial plate in in in, in my in my mouth. So there's a kernel of truth. Eric did have false teeth that was attached to a, a flipper plate at one point in his life. However, by the time in the period we're talking about right now, I had a permanent fucking bridge in place. So even if I was dumb enough or inclined through weakness of character to try to intimidate people by making them look at pictures of myself competing in a martial arts tournament or a kickboxing tournament and sitting back in my deck and cracking my knuckles and taking my teeth out of my mouth and putting them on a plate. It would have been physically fucking impossible. God damn. I was making 200 grand a year at that time. Had good dental work. That's the kind of shit that just drives me nuts, Conrad. Not mad. <laughs> Actually, right now, this is so funny. I, I just... Wait, hang on. I don't, I don't I know how I, to react. If you're not mad, I think I can fix it. Let me keep going. 
when somebody is telling you they're a tough guy, they're sending you a red flag that they can be fucked with. And we knew Bischoff was a mark for himself. Wood said he told Brian, get tight with this guy Bischoff and make him part of it. Let him be an insider. He'll be so thrilled to death that you're pulling this rib on the boys together. So he's exploiting the fact that you're a mark for yourself because you have pictures of yourself and your karate gi and you, uh, report yourself to be a badass. So, so never happened since that's not how you got conned. How'd you get conned? I didn't get conned. Okay. Let's hear it. Cause the story we've all heard is that you guys decide to work the boys and you wind up working yourself into a bigger contract negotiation and lose a big star. And you're going to say, that's not what happened. So take over. Okay. The idea, and I don't know if it was Sullivan or Brian that came to me first with the idea of the loose cannon character as would be later defined as the loose cannon character. But Brian and I had had conversations about shit that he could do ways that he could contribute, you know, what, what we could do to make him worth the kind of money that, that he needed. And I was honest with Brian, there wasn't, I couldn't get him to four or 500 grand a year, whatever he was asking for at the time. There was just no way I could, I couldn't double his money. There was no rational, logical, justifiable way that I could go to the people that I had the answer to, despite the ATM, ATM Eric narrative, there was just no way I could go to someone and say, look, I'm going to take a guy at 225. I'm going to bump him up to 500. Why? Mm, Cause I like him. That wasn't, that wasn't in my toolbox. And Brian was smart enough to see what was going on w- with Hulk and some of the people that were coming in. We were crowded. It was, it, we still, <laughs> we still had a pretty deep roster even at that time. And that's when we first started talking about, you know, Brian came to me and said, what if, what if I go work somewhere else? What if I, what if I get myself over in WWF? What if we find out a creative way for me to go spend a year or two years and get myself over somewhere else and then come back at that kind of a rate? And that made sense to me. I liked Brian. We had a great working relationship. We stayed in touch the whole time that he was gone because he did want to come back. So there was a discussion about the crazy, fucking insane Booker man character. And Kevin was a part of that. Kevin Sullivan was a part of that. And Brian and I did talk about him going eventually to WWF and trying to make a name for himself and come back here or come back to WCW. So the plan was let him go and come back. Not necessarily in terms of, I mean, you didn't have a real timetable for this. But he wanted to make more money than what you could get him. And if he could so sort of, as Jim Ross would say, go learn a new hold, then maybe you could justify, you know, him with a new value. What if he had some shine somewhere else? Yep. So the plan all along from your perspective was that he was going to wind up working for someone else. Now, did you think that that someone else would just be ECW? And that's the reason you allowed the date or, I mean, cause you're in the middle of this quote unquote Monday night war. Would you have been so? I mean, he told me he told me he had the shot to go to WWF, and I told him to go. Okay, all right. So you you realize the narrative on this has been for more than twenty years that you were a dumbass that got worked. Of course. 
why have you not actively corrected that? Well, because he passed away. <laughs> no, because I've not had a platform, uh, because it hasn't been a question that has come to me in any of the, you know, hundreds or thousands of interviews that I've done over the years. Nobody's really, you know, gotten into the kind of detail that we are here, but it's, it's typical of the kind of bullshit that's been floating around out there for years. Brian and I stayed in contact the whole time that he was in WWF. See, he heard. wanted, he wanted to make sure that he could make his way back to WCW. That was his goal. Wait, no, wait. Was he working me and just calling me when he was out on the road and maintaining a good relationship and checking in with me? Yeah, maybe. But I knew he was going to WWF and we maintained a good relationship while he was there. So what you're saying is Brian has really put himself over to seem like he was really more important to WCW than what you really valued him at, because you would have never pulled this shit with a Kevin Nash or a Scott Hall, right? No. Okay. So I guess we should just go down the rabbit hole. The Kim Wood has even suggested, quote, if Brian could have beaten up Bischoff, Bischoff would be a part of it because he wants to increase his credibility with everybody that he's a tough guy and was actually in a fight. People knew Bischoff was prepared to fight. Great. Let's get into a fight with Bischoff in front of everybody, but it never came off. And he says that really the game was to be played off of one guy, Bischoff, to work another guy, Vince. Is this all them sort of? behind the scenes coming up with an angle that they think they're, do you think Brian is sort of telling Dave Meltzer and everybody else that he's doing this just to raise the credibility and the stock when in reality, you kind of don't give a shit because you don't see him as a $400,000 a year guy. And if he wants to go try somewhere else to get it, go get it. I don't even know. I just don't even know how to respond to that. I mean, this Kim, Kim Wood guy just, I don't, I don't, I just, I'm out of responses for the first time in my fucking adult life. I'm out of responses. Um, it's, it's, it's insane. It's insane to suggest that there was even a, an atom of truth to any of that. Now, what, what Brian told other people, I don't know what conversations Brian and this Kim Wood had. I don't know. I wasn't there, but you know, to, to characterize me as someone who is trying to portray myself as a tough guy to talent. This is the first time I've ever really heard that, you know, other than when I put myself out there and challenge, you know, Vince McMahon to a fight, I have never done that with it. I mean, first of all, you know, tough guy, not tough guy. I was the executive in the company. I watched what happened to bill Watts when he did that very thing. I, I was I, I cultivated my dislike and distaste for him as a human being, watching him bully and try to intimidate other people. I watched Ole Anderson do the exact same fucking thing. So let's forget the fact that it's not even ever been in my nature to as a human being to act that way and put myself out there as a tough guy. It was not a secret that I wrestled in high school and I wrestled in college and I competed in martial arts. It wasn't a secret, but it certainly wasn't something that I wore as a badge of honor or tried to intimidate people with number one, because it wasn't in my character or personality. Number two, it was, would have been completely unprofessional. I watched what happened when Bill Watts do it. And number three with 75% of the people, including flying Brian, it wouldn't have make a fucking difference. He would have kicked my ass anyway. 
so it's just none of it even none of it if you use your wildest imagination and ate a fucking half an ounce of psilocybin mushrooms followed by a quart of scotch would make even a little bit of sense so let's run through some of the silliness the promo where he does like a rambling interview with mean gene and he's talking about mongo and you know hey you're pretty flexible for a big guy referencing some pictures with some chippendale dancers this is all you guys have worked this out and just nobody else knows sullivan knew okay that's cool you know he shows up allegedly at starcade 95 he wasn't even booked he had some time off but he shows up and you feign disgust and and book him now, I assume that that's, that's something you guys are sort of working the boys with still trying to coincide with your angle. It's not so much working the boys, you know, that's, that's, that's a term or phrase that's used often in, in a disparaging and derogatory way. And I get it. Um, it was the, the intent was never to work the boys. The intent was to work the dirt sheets. Because at that time, it's one of the reasons why I resent some of this crazy shit that we're even dealing with today. It's one of the reasons why Vince McMahon felt the way that he felt about the dirt sheets, you know, in, in all of them. Because a lot of the leaks, a lot of the things that were written really hurt the business. And in order to – it's one of the reasons why I had to go to the extent that I did to keep the NWO a secret. Because, it, it, look, he, here's what – you know, people listening to the show, you know, some of them probably understand what I'm saying or believe what I'm saying or, or, or can relate to it. There are probably many fans out there that are listeners, listeners that are, they're checking this show out. They're like, oh, he's fucking full of shit. He's making excuses. He's making this stuff up. You know, you can't please everybody, but all you have to do is look at the simple logic in the situation in the context of it. If, if, if forget that Nitro is a wrestling show and let's say it's a live weekly drama. And if all of your actors in your live weekly drama or a good percentage of them, or even a small percentage of them found it necessary in order to elevate their characters or their, their, their value to the critics who write about that particular drama, decide to leak information that benefits them to said writer or said critic. And then all of a sudden, you've got information leaking out there into the public that shouldn't be there that actually hurts the quality of the product you're producing every week. Would you not go out of your way as they as producers do, as producers of reality shows do when when, when they're um, competition reality shows where contestants have to sign away all kinds of NDAs and, and, and basically subject themselves to millions of dollars worth of lawsuit. If they breach those contracts, because if people leak that shit, it hurts the product. So it wasn't about working the boys. It was my way of protecting the integrities of the integrity of the stories in the direction that we were going in. And yes, unfortunately, because there was the, 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 the fucking Dave Meltzer sycophants out there and, the people that the, the the little birds within WCW that that had to go to various and provide him with information. There was too much shit that leaked, and we were forced to do that. It wasn't because I wanted to work the boys. It was because I had to protect the, the integrity of the content and and the show. 
because if people were reading a week before something happened, how badly it sucked and it only got two stars and people made up their minds about the product before they even saw it, it hurt our ratings and it hurt our performance. And that's what was happening for a long time, not just in WCW, but in WWF. While I was working in WWF, it was happening. I was called to a meeting by Vince McMahon, a talent meeting, uh, as, as a part of the talent. And everybody was there. Production was there. And everybody was read the riot act for the same reason. Because there was too much shit leaking out there that hurt the quality of the product. Sorry. No, uh, listen, that's what we're here for, man. On July 8th, uh, or I'm sorry, January 8th, you're doing commentary. And you said, don't be surprised if you don't see Brian Pillman and WCW a lot longer. The following week, there is the Arn Anderson, Brian Pillman match where they're taking on Kevin Sullivan and Hugh Morris. Afterwards, they have a promo and Kevin Sullivan is saying he respects Ric Flair and Arn Anderson, but calls Brian a punk and Anderson slaps Brian in the face when he's making like silly faces. And Benoit has a reaction to that. And it's written in the book that they're planting seeds here. And Pillman is kicking around the idea of maybe doing like a generation X horseman. Was anything like that ever even discussed? Had he wound up staying with WCW? No, not with me. Okay. But let's fast forward to January 22nd, because you've got a, a Las Vegas television NAPTI convention here where everybody who's anybody, including WCW and the WWF is there. And Brian's trying to work a gimmick where he's carrying a camera around with him, but he can't get in with a, without a press pass. He runs into Dave Meltzer. Meltzer gives him his pass because he's leaving. And he immediately makes a beeline for Vince McMahon, starts snapping a bunch of pictures, gives the camera to an unnerved Jim Ross and makes him take a picture of him with, uh, Vince McMahon and then hugs Jr. and whispers, it's just a work. Do you remember the word of that picture coming out? Because allegedly Brian immediately faxes it to his friend, Kim Wood and Kim Wood then turns around and sends it to Meltzer and Wade Keller and everybody else just to get people talking. I, I don't, I have no recollection of that. I remember Brian being there and I remember it for one reason only. Um, I had checked in. I, I always stayed at the MGM Grand uh, when I went to Vegas. That's where everybody stayed when we went in. But I didn't really like the hotel because it was too crowded and you had to walk about four miles to get to the elevator. Then you had to walk another eight miles once you went up the elevator to get to your room. It was just too big. And I didn't like, you know, I don't smoke. I don't like being around cigarette smoke. And the only way you could get to your room is to walk through, you know, clouds of cigarette smoke from people playing their slot machines. So you got to the elevator. So even though, you know, the company booked my room at the MGM Grand, I typically would go down the street. Uh, Zane Bresloff, who you know, I was pretty tight with, used to hang out at a place called the Barbary Coast, which was right across from Caesar's Palace. It was a small, really small, old, kind of rundown local um, Vegas hotel. It had really nice rooms, but it was very, very small, and the only people that hung out there were locals. A lot of tourists didn't go in there. So it was really quiet. Um, you could literally walk through the side door, check in, 
the check-in was only about eight feet from from the entrance, and the elevator was only another six feet from there. So you could walk in, check in, and be up in your room in less than ten minutes. So typically, I would stay there. And uh, one evening, my wife, we had already checked in, and my wife and I were sitting at the bar. There was just a real small little bar um, in the gaming area. And you could see out over the whole casino, the whole casino. You could see out over the casino, right, right to the entrance. And I looked over there, and Brian. Now Brian didn't know I was there. Nobody knew that I stayed there, that I was aware of. Nobody followed me there. None of the boys ever called me there. As far as I knew, nobody knew that I stayed there, and I kept it that way. I, I signed in under his assumed name and all that kind of crap. And um, my wife and I are sitting at the bar having a drink, and I look over and I saw Brian walk in. And he looked like a madman. I mean, he just looked like he looked crazy. He looked like the character, you know, that he was playing. And he put up the biggest damn scene uh, at the front desk because they didn't have his reservation. I don't think he even made a reservation. I think he went there claiming to have one. And when he found, when they told him he didn't have one, it gave him an opportunity to go off and go on a rant and go storming out the door. He was just – he was living that character. That's what I remember about – that's the only thing I remember about, you know, Pillman being in Las Vegas at the time. I, I don't recall the story about the picture at all. Well, what's crazy is the next night, it gets even nuttier. This is the famous match where he tries to, you know, startle Bobby Heenan, and Bobby Heenan cusses on a live mic. What the fuck are you doing? What do you remember about – I mean, obviously, Brian probably should have given Bobby a heads up was Bobby in any trouble over, you know, this slip of the tongue? No. I mean, yeah, it's hard to get after a guy for that. Now, later in the, in the night, you do a promo with him that got a lot of people talking because he threatens you with the use of the seven words. You're not supposed to say on TV. And he says something like you'd be in a lot of trouble, which is pretty fun. Um, and at this point, the dirt sheets are all in and reporting that, it could change minute by minute what's going to happen with Pillman. But it's even <laughs> discussed that that next weekend, he might run out onto the field during the Super Bowl and allegedly even asked Mark Madden for his passes. And Madden said he couldn't do that because if he did, uh, he'd probably never work in media again. Obviously, he wouldn't cover the game. He'd probably lose that job, but he might be blackballed. And supposedly, Brian paused and said, Look, I can't be the only one making sacrifices. Which is pretty fun. Uh, did you ever hear about the, the Super Bowl idea of him running onto the field? No, but I love it. I think it's great. So let's talk about when we really start winding down here, because it feels like this is the beginning of the end here in WCW. There is the famous Nitro where we're setting up the Brian Pillman, Kevin Sullivan stuff, and... Well, I'll let you take it from here because so much of this sort of becomes rumor and innuendo, but you get everybody in a room and address everybody. I'll let you tell the story. Well, I don't know what, I don't know what story to tell. I mean, I, I, I don't. Well, allegedly, you know, you're going over do's and don'ts with everybody about working at universal. And he says something like, does that go for the Booker man too? And it feels like, you know, this is more, and I know you said you don't like the phrase working the boys, but that's sort of what it feels like. And 
there there's like a put on between the three of you in front of everybody at the meeting. And of course we're going to see on TV with the strap match, the, uh, the whole, I respect you Booker man shenanigans that uh, then Arn Anderson comes out to try to clean up in street clothes, carry me through the respect match that, you know, we're building towards here. The, the, I quit strap match on February 11th. Well, I mean, I think you covered it all. We, you know, did, were we working everybody? Sure. I mean, like I just described, Brian was working people that didn't even need to be worked. You know, going going back to the Barbary Coast scene that I just described to you, there was no reason for Brian to do that. He was living that character every way that he possibly could. You know, the same is true with the Mark Madden story. He was doing shit to get himself over everywhere he could, every way he could, including, you know, at Universal. And yes, I was in on it. So was Kevin Sullivan. So was Brian. It was part of the direction that we're going in. I don't, you know, I don't really have a lot more to add to it than that. Here's my question, I guess, because you're going to let him, you know, do all of this stuff and he's going to go to ECW and wrestle a pencil and threaten to pull his penis out and piss in the ring. And he's going to do all this sort of other crazy stuff. You know, you sort of insinuated earlier when we were talking about his, his real life problems. Hey, if Vince McMahon had a guy who had all this stuff going on, would he use them? Would he put them in? And of course not. What's the payoff here. If you're really going to let him go, why are you still letting him have TV? Are you just that interested in the Russo style booking of, they don't know what they're going to get next. Let's give them a surprise. Let's give them a surprise. No, no, no. That's not Russo. Fuck. Don't give Russo that much credit. Look, the, the, the loose cannon, you know, Brian Pillman's character in that storyline, um, was one we're still talking about. And it's, it's not because it was a, we just flew by the seat of our pants and as you just inferred and we're just going to let him do whatever he wants. We don't really know where it's going to go and whatever happens, happens. That wasn't the case. The, 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 the agreement that Brian and I had was let's play this loose cannon character out, play it out here in WCW. And when it's time to go, it's time to go. Go get yourself over you know, either an ECW or WWF, wherever you end up, and then let's bring you back. And hopefully when we bring you back, I can justify the money you want. That was it. There was nothing more, nothing less to it than that. And it was a cooperative kind of thing. Um, all we were doing it at the point that you're talking about right now was letting that play out. But That's Eric, all. Do, you, do you realize how stupid that sounds? You know, when you're like, Hey, let me get you over. So then you can go get over somewhere else and then come back and cost me more money. Well, it, it doesn't sound stupid. We, he didn't want to stay. We weren't going to get him over. He wasn't going to become the loose cannon and then be able to qualify for a double, to double the salary. There was nothing we were going to be able to do in WCW that was going to allow me to justify doubling his salary. So the, the next option, well, well, I guess if that sounds stupid to you or, or our listeners, then I guess my option would have been to try to bury him or to just cut him loose with five months left on his contract and pay him anyway. I submit to you that those two options are even dumber as opposed to saying, look, here's a guy I like. Here's a character that could work. Let's leave on good terms. Let's let the storyline play itself out. Where he gets so fucking crazy, I've got to fire him. 
So there's at least logic to it. And then if he gets over and there's a way for me to justify giving him the money he wants, great. I'm happy to do it because I like him and I believe in him. That's all there is to it. But you're in a Monday night war. I mean, doesn't it feel not at the time we weren't, no, we weren't, it wasn't, it was, no, we weren't. What year are we talking about here? What specifically? 1996. We're ninety. We we weren't in a war. We were in a blood. We, we were in a slaughter. So, in your opinion, it didn't matter if he left. Like, you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is traditional booking is in my. This is but it's always been seen to me anyway. Is hey, this guy's leaving. He can't go over our guys on his way out. Let's make let's job him out on TV, and then he can go work for them. But he can't but, leave here with some with some sort of push. But it it I know that's you know that's 1970s and 1980s. Um, old style, traditional booking. I liked Brian. We had a good relationship. I wanted to keep Brian, but I couldn't afford him for what he needed and wanted. So this was the best possible solution. I wasn't worried about Brian going to WWF at that point. I mean, I knew he was going to, I knew there was a, I should say, I didn't know he was going to, I knew that there was a possibility that that was going to happen. And I'm, this is not taking anything away from Brian as a performer and a character, but at that particular time i was just not concerned about the adverse impact of brian pillman going to the wwf let me ask I wasn't. you about the famous story about uncensored uncensored 96 was basically hulk hogan and macho man randy savage in a triple cage against every bad guy in the history of wrestling <laughs> and meltzerberg report hogan apparently ordered pillman to return immediately and get involved with him Rather than milk the angle as originally planned to create a situation that doesn't look like a normal wrestling angle by being aligned with the main heel group, it meant being on the same side as Kevin Sullivan, which basically ruins all the plans made previously and exposes WCW's long-term booking. What his exact ideas for Pillman were, were isn't clear, but by having Pillman return in this manner kills all the convoluted BS WCW tried to work all its wrestlers with. And killed 98% of the impact Brian Pillman coming back with enough heat behind him to actually make a difference and finally break out of the mid card pack. So the suggestion is Hogan has his finger on the pulse of the business brother. And he sees that Pillman's getting a little buzz. So, Hey, put him over there with Zeus and Bane and Kevin Sullivan and the Zodiac and everybody else. And let me beat him too. And he no shows. Chat me up. What really happened? I, I can't chat you up about that because it's absurd. I, 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 I just can't. There's just nothing for, there's no, there's not enough of anything there for me to really respond to. Well, he was advertised for the pay-per-view. He doesn't show up. Why not? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely cannot remember. All right. So let's talk about. The, the release, because ultimately, you know, Hogan's power play that you don't recall exactly is what causes the pivot for the release because Brian doesn't show up and you vaguely mention it on commentary when you make comment or you have the commentators make comment about, and we don't even know where Brian Pillman is. The book says Hulk made the call to get Brian back at TV that Monday. And he raised the subject of the new deal with Bischoff and was offered a renewal of his existing contract at $225,000. Pillman, of course, feels like he's got some leverage here 
and asked for $500,000. Well, obviously that doesn't go over and he doesn't show up at the same time. It feels like Brian has sort of shot his shot with ECW because he ran a bunch of commercials for a new hotline that he was trying to get over as his own dirt sheet hotline. But Heyman sends him a bill for $7,600. And that's the end of the ECW relationship. Pillman flips out. So now Hogan wants him to come in and be on this heel faction and take the L, which Pillman thinks gives him no leverage. He doesn't think he can do anything with ECW again since they're holding him up for $7,600. So somebody pitches the idea of a release. And this has been the thing that everybody sort of circles back to that you had legal draft up a release and allegedly this is Brian's idea that right before uncensored, you would give him a written release and then he could use it as leverage for everyone else and to create some buzz. But that's the way he says he got a better, he got a better deal. In your opinion, when you sent that release out, did you think that was really the end or did you still think this is a working release? Because that's the way it's been framed for 20 years. It's not, it wasn't a working release. We agreed. He was coming up to the end of this deal. And I don't know how many different ways I can say this to be any, any clearer or to cover bases that somehow I'm leaving uncovered. Well, we agreed. We were going to go ahead. The reason I say that, and I will just want the emphasis is because everybody, and I know you're going to get fired up when I say this, including Dave Meltzer says that it was not supposed to be the real release. But that to me, what, what you're saying here is. Brian wasn't working you. Brian was working Dave. Correct. If, if, if Dave believed that that was a working release, then yeah, he got worked. Cause he says it's one of the greatest things in the history of wrestling. It's so unbelievable. He didn't tell me ahead of time he was doing it, but as soon as he did it and he told me what he had done, I was like, no way. And he says, yeah, everybody thinks I'm released because they sent me a real letter of release. They don't believe it, but it's a real letter. I told him we've got to fool the secretaries. We've got to fool everyone. And this is what Meltzer is saying that Brian told him. So Brian believes that he's working you, or at least that's what he wants Meltzer to believe. But Meltzer believes that you've been worked. This is like who's on first of works, is it not? It is. And, and, and it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard to react to some of this stuff. And for me personally, it's a little bit easier because I can pull myself back and look at the major beats in everything that went down. Right. And some of the shit that, that, that people are suggesting, you know, if, if Meltzer is suggesting that I'm the one that got worked and he believed that I would actually write a release, a legal release, there's no such thing as a fucking working release. It's either a release or it isn't. It, 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 it some of the stuff that, that people, whether they've been talking about it and believing it, have, have allowed themselves to get sucked into it for 20 years or not is kind of fucking irrelevant. It started out as bullshit and it just becomes bigger bullshit as people keep telling the story and adding to it over time. Brian knew that he couldn't make the money he wanted to make. He wanted to leave. I didn't want him to leave, but I couldn't afford to pay him. So we worked cooperatively to create this loose cannon character with the hopes that Brian was going to land somewhere, increase his own value, and then come back at the appropriate time. That's the beginning and the end of that story. I didn't go to, to I mean, 
Brian and I didn't stay in contact while he was working in WWF, probably once every six or eight weeks. Not, not every day, not every week, about once, not a little more than once a month. I'd get a call from Brian when he was on the road. Um, we, and, and we just talked shit. We didn't, we we're talking about wrestling. We weren't working on an angle for him to come back or anything. We just kept the door open. He'd tell me how things were going. I'd tell him how things were going in WCW. We just stayed in touch so that when the time was right, if the time was right, he could come back and hopefully make the money he, he wanted to make. So let's talk about that because allegedly, and I guess we should mention here, this, the release happens in February or March rather. He's in a horrible car accident on April 15th. Everybody knows the story there. Um, just an unbelievable accident in his Hummer. And I guess we should mention nobody's even sure that he's going to be able to wrestle at this point. So all this, I have a contract. I don't, I'm leveraging another one. All that's in jeopardy here. And a lot of that could be traced back based on opinion, you know, cause we don't know for sure, but it certainly feels like there may have been substances involved there. The McMahon has a meeting with Brian and his wife, Melanie at Titan towers on May 23rd to try to lure him to sign with the company, but they're not offering guaranteed money, just an opportunity. As we all know, Pillman behind the scenes is still trying to convince you to give him a half a million dollar contract to no avail, but the book says you made an offer over the phone on June 1st for $425,000 for three years. And while there were particulars to be worked out, everybody agrees in principle, or at least that's what the book says. And you obviously felt good enough to show clips on nitro on June 3rd of his situation with Kevin Sullivan back in February, the whole, I respect you Booker man stuff. So it looks like he's coming back, but it doesn't happen. Did you go back after letting him go in March and offer 425 on June 1st? No. Okay. Why did you air the clip on June 3rd? Did you think you had a new deal worked out on June 1st for a a reduced amount of money? We didn't have, we didn't have a deal in place. There was a conversation or maybe two about him coming back at the rate that we had offered him, but there was no deal in place. Allegedly he gets an offer from Vince McMahon and before he signs, um, he calls you one last time and then ultimately signs the deal. And he signed on June 7th with the WWF. Did you feel like at that time when you find out that he had signed that you had lost an opportunity or was there, were there so many question marks because of his personal life, because of his injury, were you just ready to be rid of it? What's your feeling when you find out that he's gone, he's going to the WWF. I was happy for him. Look, I mean, I'm trying hard to think of a different way to say this. And I haven't already said, I knew he wouldn't have been happy coming back for a lesser amount of money. Right. I, I, I knew he wouldn't. Would I have given him his job back at the rate that I, that I could justify and afford? Yes, I would have. Um, so this, but I, the 425 is straight fiction. Not, not real. Never happened. Okay. Let me ask never this. happened. It's been written that just before, of course, we know the story. Brian passed away in October of 97. I found him in a, in a hotel room in Minnesota. Um, before 
his WWF deal was up. Allegedly, he called you to see if there's a place for him with WCW, if he can get out of his deal or when his contract ends. And it's pitched in the book here that he was actually floating the idea of rejoining the horseman, maybe coming back and picking up where they left off. And I don't know that you've ever commented on that, but allegedly Pillman is encouraged by your conversation and then goes to Jr. and asks for his release, but he's turned down. Now, I think that release request was probably involved with his drug failure that Jr. made him submit to. Do you recall a conversation and sometime 97 late summer, early fall about him, maybe floating the idea coming back. As I've said throughout the last third of the show, Brian and I stayed in contact on a regular basis. We knew at some point we both wanted him to come back. There was never a specific conversation at and around this time. And he never suggested to me that if I could get my release, could I come back? It's just a one day type of thing. Like it, it, it just never happened. Right. I, I, I just, I don't know how to try to make sense out of complete fabricated bullshit. And I, I, I just don't, as hard as I'm trying right now, cause I don't want to piss you off. I don't want to piss off our listeners. I don't want to come off like I don't remember, or I'm trying to avoid something, but, but to react to these complete fabrications that were presented in this book and somehow tie it all together into reality is a real challenge. The, the, the facts are the facts, the things that I've discussed and admitted to for years, I've discussed and admitted to for years. I like Brian. I wanted Brian to come back. He wanted more money, blah, 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 blah. We've already heard it a dozen times in the sure. last hour. Um, it sounds to me like somebody, whoever this guy is, that's writing this tripe, you know, is sitting back and just imagining, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, a bunch of issue taking taking certain facts and points in Brian's life and trying to tie them all together and weave them into get together into this very colorful, dramatic book. But unfortunately, so much of it is bullshit. I mean, the less. The, the, the scenario that you just laid out to me was supposedly, allegedly, if I remember correctly, and I'm not criticizing you, Conrad, but supposedly at one point, you know, Brian contacted you and said, look, if I can get out of my release, you know, could I come back to WCW? The answer to that is no. That never happened. What did happen is I maintained a good relationship with Brian right. throughout the period of time that he was gone. So there's a giant fucking leap of logic between, you know, me having a conversation with a guy that I hoped would come back to the company someday. And all of a sudden him calling me up one day and says, look, if I get out of my deal, can I come back? It didn't happen that way. Sure. Now, I have no knowledge of any failed drug test or any of the issues between him and JR. This is the first time I'm hearing that. But again, it sounds to me like we've got an individual that's taking two instances, one of which I didn't know anything about and creating a, creating a fictional story out of it. That's the, that's my best guess. Let me ask you, you know, what was your reaction when you heard about Brian's death? Is this one that shocked you or given all the troubles he had had, was this one that real wasn't really all that surprising. No, it it was shocking. I mean, well, shocking isn't the right word. Look, anytime it's jarring. Someone, yeah, someone you know, someone that you like, that you have a relationship with, and I want to be sure I don't give people the wrong impression. 
Brian and I weren't tight. We didn't hang out together. You know, we, 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 we had a good professional working relationship and, and I think a reasonable, reasonable amount of professional respect that worked both ways. Otherwise he wouldn't have wanted to come back. If this guy, Kim Wood was, was, was accurate. He wouldn't have wanted to come back to WCW, but but I liked him a lot. I went to his funeral because I liked him a lot. I don't go to wrestling funerals. It's something I just generally don't do. Um, but I went because I wanted to pay respects to him and his family. Um, even after all of this stuff that allegedly went down between he and I, um, we had a good relationship. So of course I was, I don't know if, I don't know what the word would be. I guess more, I was saddened you know, deeply saddened because of the way he went, because of all the shit that he had gone through, um, in his life up until that point, kind of felt a little shitty for not being able to make what he wanted to happen, happen. Um, probably booted myself and he asked for a while over that, you know, you do the, what, what if I could have done this or what if I could have done that kind of head game to yourself or I did anyway, um, for a little bit. But yeah, of course I was, I was deeply saddened, but not shocked. It was not, you know, I had seen enough of drug abuse and, and alcohol abuse by that time that, uh, it didn't shock me. What do you think his legacy in wrestling will be? Do you think it'll be flying Brian or will it be, you know, the loose cannon persona? It's the loose cannon persona. It was a great character and he lived that character. He lived it. I guess good and bad, uh, arguably he lived it a little too much, but when a guy believes in a character so much to go to such an extreme, to get that character over, whether it was the Mark Madden story or whatever happened with him and Jim Ross and Vince McMahon, or, you know, those are the types of things that people do to really get themselves over. Where, where you just don't know if it's real or if it's not. That was the magic. And we're all having this conversation. You know, people are listening to this, you know, now, and you and I are in this lengthy conversation about what was real and was, wasn't real and was Meltzer getting worked or was Eric getting worked or whereas everybody working everybody to get more money out of Vince McMahon. And here's the truth. No one's ever going to believe anything. Everybody's going to go into their camps. Dave Meltzer's going to listen to this and he's going to go, fuck that. That's not true. I talk to Dave all the time. Well, you were probably talking to Dave all the time because because Brian was working you. Because Brian was good at that. And, 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 and it wouldn't have been the first time Meltzer's got worked by talent. So, but we'll all never know. And, and I think that's his legacy. It was, a, it, it was, it was, a, it was a work of art because none of us will ever be a hundred percent sure. I'm not a hundred percent sure he wasn't completely working me. I know what I believe. I've, I've, I've shared with you the conversations we had. I've, I've not tried to hide anything. I'm not trying to make myself look better by shading anything a certain way. You know, we had a very honest transparent conversation. He wanted something I couldn't give him. He wanted to try to go make a name for himself with this crazy fucking character. I kind of liked the crazy character. It was different. And I knew that at some point, if he, if, if there was a way to bring him back, I would, it's a very simple story really, but it's only been complicated because there were so many people involved and there's so much mystery and, you know, supposed collusion in it. And it's really fascinating. 
We'll see you next week, man, right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.